Consider everything, but take nothing as gospel. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us to our guest today, Rafe Kelly. Rafe is the owner of Evolve Move Play and is an avid coach and speaker on the importance of movement and play. All I have to say is you guys better be ready to buckle in, buckle up, and wait for the blast off. That is Coach Kelly's brain. It, this was one of the deepest and one of the one of the podcasts that I've, I have like three pages of notes on. I've listened to it twice all the way through. And th- there's just so much knowledge here on the importance of play, on the importance of environments, environments, and on the importance of not tricking ourselves on what strength actually is on how to create non-fragile and non-breakable athletes. And this is just, just an amazing podcast. And I hope you guys get as much out of it as I did. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into the field of sports performance and quotation? I guess it's a little bit different than you, but kind of the field of movement for you and kind of your journey to where you're at currently. Yeah, so I'm the founder of a method called Evolve Movement Play. Um, the basic idea is that the human body evolved from movement. And we need to understand the, the kind of movement demands that it evolved with. And then actually that a lot of that is encoded in play. And that play is our best guide to understanding the fundamental ways that people need to move in order to thrive as human beings. Uh, so I have a background. I started um, turning martial arts when I was six years old. Um, I also grew up at the end of a dirt road, you know, hippie kid running around the woods, roughhousing with my brother and my cousins and, you know, making wooden swords and fighting each other and throwing, uh, throwing apples at each other from the orchard and you know, all that kind of hijinks, building forts in the woods. Um, uh, 15, I got into, uh, watch the Olympics, right? 1996 Olympics and got a track and field gymnastics and basketball. And so I started like, you know, trying to train myself to sprint. I didn't have access to a coach or anyone to work with, but I was like running sprints and reading, you know, buying strength conditioning materials. Uh, and then I started training uh, gymnastics, which was really difficult for me because I was already six foot two at that point, but only 155 pounds. And eventually I'd fill in until like 225 now. So um, naturally a big guy and, you know, I had big bones and I didn't have a lot of muscle to move it around. So gymnastics was hard, but uh, I did just kind of keep going to open gyms throughout my, uh, my teen years. And then at 18, my body had filled in enough that I started to be able to get better at the skills. Uh, at 21, I became a gymnastics coach. I was also playing basketball a lot during that whole period. So I played basketball sometimes up to six hours a day during my teens, you know, got to the point where I could dunk, broke my ankle, lost the ability to dunk, and then got into the weight room, started squatting, you know, learned a little bit about shock method, plyometrics, got the ability to dunk again. Um, and, uh, then I started coaching gymnastics. So my focus was in gymnastics. Um, and then I'd been off and on in the martial arts So 15 to 16, I was training Muay Thai and BJJ and 11 to 13, it was Kung Fu. And then Aikido for a while in my middle childhood and early childhood was Tang Soo Do. Um, and then I was 23 when I discovered parkour and I, that was 2005. So I was one of the first generation of parkour athletes really in the world, but especially in the United States, that was very early to adopt it. There's only about five or six people in Washington who were doing it at that stage. Um, and because of my, my background, I rapidly kind of was one of the most skilled people in the community. And I was also coaching gymnastics. So people came to me right away 
to kind of get help with their technical development because I had some, some level of subject matter expertise at a time when nobody did. So I kind of fell into the role of being a gymna- uh, parkour coach as well as a gymnastics coach. And over time, I discovered that I you know, had a lot more love for parkour. And I, I, let's see, immediately when I started parkour, it kind of made me think about this idea of like, what were the skills that ancient heroes had, right? Like I want to be able to flip, I want to be able to run and jump and climb through the forest, with, you know, or the city without any uh, anything. And I want to be able to fight again, right? Like I, I need to get back into fighting. So I, I think I started training uh, some like Russian-based martial arts, some more Sistema for maybe six months, something like that, uh, right away. And then I found a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Muay Thai school, MMA type school um, through uh, an affiliate of Straight Blast Gym. And I trained there for probably two, two years, I think. Yeah. Uh, something like that. So I, was, I got really into that again as well. And then I, I, I fell, ran into the work of Georges Hubert, who's the founder of Method Natural. And um, he had this idea of like the, the natural movements, the movements that we evolved with are the movements that that we need in order to be fully healthy. And that you could see that people who lived natural lifestyles, even without any direct tutoring in gymnastics, were strong and mobile and flexible and could do acrobatics. And, and so he built his method around that. And he talked about walking, running, jumping, climbing, moving on all four, lifting, carry, or lifting, throwing, um, balancing, swimming, and self-defense. Those were the 10 fundamental physical categories. So in 2006, I started training, kind of taking my parkour training and taking it in nature, which is what George Hubert uh, kind of talked about. And as a kid who grew up in nature, I love being in nature and combining it with all these other things. So I was training. I was also influenced by CrossFit at that stage. So I was like going out and like taking CrossFit wads off of the main site and then like using the stuff in my environment to do it. So I'd like be grabbing like chopped up pieces of wood that I found in the woods and doing thrusters with them and then like climbing trees instead of doing pull-ups and (laughs) running sprints through the woods and vaulting over things as part of like, you know, uh, CrossFit type workout. So I was doing that for a little while. Then I did some CrossFit. I got down to like a 223 Fran and uh, like a 147 Grace and, you know, I was doing pretty good at CrossFit, but I didn't find the CrossFit was very, um, worked very well with my parkour. It was too taxing to my body. And I actually started gaining body fat when I was on, when I was doing CrossFit, because my body was just, it was too much stress. I also had a lot of life stress at that time. But yeah, so I did, did a bit of the CrossFit thing, did this, did that. And I kind of all started to meld these ideas together into what I initially called natural athletics back in 2000, 2007, 2000, yeah, 2007. And I worked with a guy who went on to found uh, MoveNet. Um, and we kind of were, were collaborating, but we ultimately didn't see things similarly. And I decided that I needed to focus on parkour as kind of the center of what I was doing. So I co-founded the first parkour gym on the West Coast in 2009 and uh, did that for until 2013. And in 2013, it was time to build a ball move play, you know, which was kind of the, the, the latest iteration of all those thoughts that have been building up for quite a long time. And then, so I also did a lot of research on, on play and understanding play. Uh, it's inspired by the work of Frank Frensich from Easy Burn Animal and Stuart Brown, who's done research on play, and then later the work of Yak Pengsa. And then I've gotten into the perception action stuff, and I've gotten into motor learning theory and cueing. I'm a huge fan of Nick Winkleman, um, you know, and kind of have really looked at what I've found is that there's this really interesting lens on how movement develops and self-organizes that comes out of exposing people to playful movement opportunities, and particularly movement in nature 
that shows that the organism has the capacity to organize really well, um, often without too much coaching. And that a lot of times coaches are getting in the way. And so my experience of taking my parkour teaching from a gym setting into a nature setting was really, I actually started to adopt kind of a constraints led type approach in some ways, um, through that experience before being exposed to the ideas. And then it was one of my students who's actually uh, involved in the football industry. He's a athletic trainer. Uh, he's a physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer for the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, his name is Michael Tankovich. He actually turned me on to uh, um, dynamical systems and understanding that. So through him, I started studying Franz Bosch and Nikolai Bernstein and kind of applying all those ideas into the movement world and understanding, you know, athleticism, functional human movement, fundamental human movement through that perspective. So that's a, it's a lot to try and uh, to stuff into a single, uh, a single little digest there. Cause I've been working on this stuff, uh, you know, in some sense since I was 15 years old and professionally uh, for 17 years. And I've, I've pulled together a lot of strands that I don't think that a lot of other people have pulled together. Right. Like not a lot of people are looking at parkour and martial arts and the constraint led approach and, you know, Nikolai Bernstein and, and kind of seeing where all these things come together, plus the deep evolutionary aspect of it. So I wanted to give you kind of a, a little bit of an overview there. And now you can kind of pick up whatever themes you think would be particularly interesting for the audience for us to, uh, to dig deeper into. No, that, that's freaking awesome coach, because that was exactly what I was going to say is you have so many areas to draw upon. I think that, like you said, like that, that, <laughs> being able to drop on all those areas allows you to make those connections that not a lot of coaches are really seeing. And we, we talked a little bit about it before, but the American football world a little bit, especially. And, and I say this because I, w- I was in this world. Like I was like, the only thing I had to draw upon was like a, like a West side approach or like a barbell approach. Like if it didn't have a barbell, like I had nothing else to draw upon and more, I realized and dive into some of these rap holes of something that's, you would look at, maybe it is parkour and you look at the parkour field and in some aspects, it has nothing to do with the American football field. But if I'm looking and studying the parkour, how much can I can take and grab and make connections to kind of move the American football field forward? So I think that's amazing. The, the amount of kind of knowledge that you have and the amount of connections you're able to make. Yeah. Thank you. And um, go ahead. And this is where I'm I, I don't know if you know him, but Austin Einhorn kind of talks about it a little bit on the podcast when I had him on, but he also talked about kind of the evolved approach to training and with these American football athletes. And you, you, you mentioned the kind of the 10 aspects of it. And I think something that we're really, really good at is kind of the lifting and carrying aspect, but then we're missing out on every one, like every other aspect and the amount of growth that we could see if we kind of like you said, put these athletes in an environment to where they're exposed to these other aspects of maybe it is crawling, maybe it is uh, climbing, maybe it is running and sprinting and playing in these other kind of environments and how much growth we could see from these athletes rather than being so kind of specialized in a sense. Yeah. So I kind of want to go on a rant here. So I hope you'll you'll be patient with me if you don't mind, but I actually have kind of a, a big critique of of the team sport world. Not because I think there's anything wrong with team sports. I think they're wonderful games. There's a lot to learn from them. I like, I'm fascinated by the athleticism. I love to watch, you know, uh, Dalvin cook run through the, the offense. I love that stuff. Like there's so much that's interesting there uh, from a movement perspective, but I think that there's a, a certain myopia in, in this. And there's a, there's a lack of understanding of something that's been lost and in the loss of the base of having general human physical skills and, and, and kids roughhousing, kids running around doing all that stuff has, has actually fundamental physical preparation for sport 
not existing anymore is, is really problematic. So I, I ran into the work of Katie Bellman a few years ago, and I really love her work. And she's a mechanical, uh, you know, she's a biomechanist. And what she looks at is, you know, how the cells respond to load, right? That's her big passion project. And the message is really interesting. Every cell in the body, you know, except the, the neural cells in the brain, basically adapts to being loaded. And they adapt to being loaded based on how you load them. Okay. So your individual cells have a cytoskeleton and the cell can be basically stressed in three ways. It can be compressed, it can be stretched, or it can be smeared, right? And the cytoskeleton of that cell gets stronger. And then you can look up from the cellular level to the, the fascia, right? You can look at the muscles, you can look at the bones, right? When you load a bone um, uh, perpendicular to the ground, actually load a bone you get a different a different strengthening of that bone than when you load it horizontally so if you want a a a, uh, a femur for instance to be really resistant to impact that's coming horizontally in on a tackle a squat in the weight room is only going to have a certain amount of carryover and if you want that that tissue on the leg right if you want the the, the muscle and the skin and the fascia um, to be well adapted and the nerves that are flowing through that, the nerve bundles and, and the veins and everything, you want them to have good tissue resilience against a tackle coming in on the leg or any other aspect of the body. It actually has to be loaded in that way. It has to be compressed. It has to be stretched. It has to be pushed around. So Dan John identified this years ago, right? He talked about the fact that like when you first start, uh, like when you, first, when you first put a barbell on your back and you put a heavy weight on that barbell, you get a bruise across the top of your shoulders. But after a few weeks of training, you no longer bruise in that area. The, that tissue has become more resilient to the way that it's being loaded in the same way that your body, right, that your strength is going up, that your muscles are getting stronger. We have systematically pulled a lot of the contact out of the way that we're preparing team sport athletes, contact sport athletes. And then we're having these huge rashes of injuries because we're, we're actually loading them in ways that are not relevant to their evolutionary heritage and not relevant to their, their sport, right? A barbell squat is a wonderful exercise and it is incredibly powerful at developing certain attributes that are going to be really valuable, right? If you want to put if you want a lineman who can push another lineman back, like a squat is a great exercise for developing specific attributes that you want in that person but it's so far from complete, right? So if we think about this model that, that tissues adapt to every way that they're loaded and what types of loads are we getting? And the way that you load a cell, it's literally like food for the cell because the chemical signaling pathways that are used by the body when load is, uh, is, is given to the cell, the same chemical pathways that, that, you're, you're, that you're, you're getting through food, right? So how much collagen and how much calcium is being deposited in a bone, for instance, is dependent and where that calcium and collagen is depend uh, is uh, is put in is is food chemical nutrition, but it's also mechanical nutrition. You have to mechanically nourish that bone in a way that prepares it for the types of things that you're actually going to demand of it. And and what happens is that if you if you if you prepare in highly specific reductionist ways, what you actually get is um, you get tissue resiliency um, mismatches. You get what's called proportional weakness problems. Right, so. Most of your audience probably trains with barbells and maybe pull-up bars and rings. So if they look at their hands right now, maybe you can do this. You'll see a line of callus below the bottom of the fingers. Okay? 
So you have this thick, hard, horny skin just below your fingers, probably a couple smaller patches on the fingers. Maybe if you do a lot of rings, you'll have some around the middle of your hand, but there's probably some skin on your hand that's completely soft and non-calloused. So callus is how certain types of skin adapt to being loaded and become stronger and more resilient to the loads that's being put on it. So people think they tear their hands because the calluses get too big. That's partially true, right? There is such a thing as excess, excessive hypertrophy. But what's more true actually is that you've now created very strong tissue right next to tissue that's completely untrained. The problem is that parts of your hand are basically sedentary. The skin on that hand is sedentary. And so what happens is when, you know, basically you can imagine that that callus is like, you know, uh, is like JJ Watt, right? You know, the skin next to it is your accountant. And when JJ Watt pulls really hard on your accountant's arm, <laughs> he just rips it off, right? It's not good. When you have strong tissue, like imagine a chain, right? Or Kevlar next to some soft, weak tissue, like bathroom tissue. When you have that strong tissue pull on the weak tissue, what's gonna happen? You get a tear. So if you look at my hand, I mean, I don't know if this is going up, you'll see that there's a continuous callus from the bottom of my palm all the way to the tops of my fingers with a small localized more development at the bottom of the fingers. The reason is because I climb an extremely wide diversity of surfaces. So this, so the hand is exposed because you can imagine, you know, some, some things are a certain width or thickness, right? The branch may be curved, right? There's going to be um, different like surface features that are going to press into the skin in different places. And so now I'm getting a proportional development of the strength of the skin on my hand across my entire hand. So what is, imagine that mechanism now playing out throughout the body. You create, you're creating pools of very strong tissues next to atrophied tissues. What are you going to have? You're going to have a, a mechanism for tear injuries and rip injuries and tear. But look at all the non-contact injuries that are happening. And this year, of course, is the worst that we've seen. How many Achilles tears have there been in the NFL? How many um, uh, ACL tears have there been in the NFL? No, everyone gets pissed off when, when someone says they have the answer for why that's happening. Maybe this isn't the answer. This is, this is something I've been thinking about for years. And I think that it's been happening. We've seen this acceleration for years. I saw once a few years ago, maybe in 2015 or something, I heard that in the last 15 years, the ACL rate in the NFL had tripled, ACL tear rate. So I asked Michael about that. And I asked him, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he's a primary sports scientist for the Seattle Seahawks. We were out at dinner and, uh, and we just had a chat and I asked them if they thought that was true. And they said that it would be very hard to, to, to actually get a clean estimate of that because teams are going to be kind of cagey with their injury data. And you're going to have a hard time pooling all the team's injury data, but they felt it was plausible that, that they are seeing that. Right? And you can see that these types of injuries are, are accelerating at all levels of sport. We're seeing 11 year old kids who are tearing their, you know, ulnar ligaments playing baseball. So Essentially, the way that I look at it is that the, the movements that we evolved with, running, jumping, climbing, lifting, carrying, throwing, th they're like the whole foods of movement, right? And the closer they are to the way that we evolved, the more whole the food is, right? And when you have a, uh, a, a movement diet that's made up of just barbell lifts, sprints, linear, straight direction sprints, um, essentially what you're doing is you're creating this problem of of hypertrophy next to atrophy. If you, if you, if you build it, an incredibly powerful quad, an incredibly powerful glute, incredibly powerful uh, hamstring, a nervous system that can turn on and use an immense amount of power, and then your knee never gets torqued for six months of the year, 
what happens when you turn on that incredibly powerful nervous system, that quad that can squat 600 pounds. And now that, that, that thing is pulling on an ACL that's had no nonlinear demands for months on end. So yes, I think that there is a huge potential application for building robustness in uh, team sport athletes through adopting a much more natural and wider set of movement nutrients, as well as looking at their movement lifestyle outside of their training. And this is a, a key thing. If you're an NFL athlete, you're actually one of the most sedentary people in the world outside of your practice. So you move incredibly intensely for large periods of time or for a long time, way more intensely than any kind of evolutionary perspective ever would have had you, right? Like there would have never been a, you know, like a consistent thing um, in a kind of evolutionary environment where you're, you're going to play with the intensity of an NFL player, right? And do that for the period of time that you're doing it and have those practices. Like that's a really insane demand on your body. Um, but then imagine that you're, you're putting these insane demands on your body. And at the same time, how many hours of film study are you doing? How many hours of being in a car, being on a plane, being in a bus, how much sitting time are these people spending? It's, it, it, that adds up, right? Like they're not getting that movement nourishment a, a, as they should in a lot of other ways. So we have to really change the way that we think about it. If we want to start making these athletes healthier and more robust, in my opinion. Yeah. Coach, you got you, a little bit about where, where the natural movement perspective, I actually think has a lot to, that, it, that can add and help the, the team sport world. You got me fired up now. This is everything I've been kind of talking about and writing about for a long, long time. Uh, it was a huge eye opener for me is, and you, you, I talk about, and I've been writing about this for a while, but like, what is strength? You know, like we talk about strong in a sense of, because he can move a bunch of weight. We have, we have athletes, um, in the college sector that'll come to me as freshmen that can like squat 500 pounds. They can bench like 400. Like you would think these are the strongest of the strong athletes. And you, you tell them, Hey, like let's do a simple bear crawl. And 10 steps into a bear crawl, their shoulders are dead. You know, like their hands and wrists are hurting. Uh, their, their forearms, they, they can't hang from something for more than like 10 seconds. You're like, man, yeah. like what, what is strong? Like, what is this strength built on? Like, is this actually strong? Is that position that you're putting yourself in that you've protect, perfected in the weight room? Like, are you ever going to see that on the field or in life again, other than in that similar situation? Like, are you actually strong in quotations? Is, are these things actually carrying over or are we creating, like you said, like this huge, like motor that doesn't fit into the, the athlete that isn't used to the demands that are going to be put on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things going on there with, with, with the way that, you know, practice has been constrained. Skill practice is constrained by collective bargaining agreements and all this other stuff. But, um, yeah, we need it. So, uh, if you have a strong muscle and a weak joint, you're injury prone. But a barbell squat isn't going to tell you if that's the case. And it's not going to develop that joint particularly. Not for the type of demands that you're looking at within this sport. And then... Another aspect of that is like, like we think about those primal patterns, right? How well do you get up? How articulate are you in your ability to like move from, from sitting, standing, sitting, lying down on your belly, on your back, to your feet, to different positions, twisting, like, you know, how many times are you going to have to get low, get close to the ground, get knocked to the ground, get up, you know, be able to keep pursuing, be able to get spun, be able to, to do all these things. If you don't, if you don't have good rotational ability, right. If you don't have good acrobatic ability, if you don't have good ability to get low to the ground and be articulate using both your hands and your feet to locomote yourself and a twist and change direction, um, you're, you're not actually developing athleticism, right? 
And, and, and a lot of that is just completely, completely missed. And one of my favorite things too here is kind of the, the mindset that it creates too is we'll, we'll bring this athlete in that kind of thinks they're like that big, strong, tough athlete. And it, to me, it's like the, the kind of the fragile mindset of you ask that same athlete to do a cartwheel, uh, do some of the, the, like the, the grappling. So we, we, we implement, and my bigs hate me for it because it's tiring and it's a lot of, but we do a lot of grappling, a lot of wrestling type stuff, a lot of combat based stuff before we go. Um, but a lot of times, like the question is like, is this going to hurt me? You know, like, is, is that going to hurt me? Is this, and it's like, man, like one talking about the evolutionary approach, like our ancestors have survived like so much. And like, we're concerned if like a cartwheel is going to hurt us, you know, like these type of like, it seems to me like we're, we're very disconnected with how we kind of bring our athletes up and kind of how we have them approach training to where like, they're fearful of getting hurt. Like that, that's, that's what's in their brain is like, they're fearful of hurting themselves in a lot of these things. When like, you look at it, like, it's play, you know, like it's basic movement patterns that we should not be fearful of. Yeah. I mean, if you're afraid to do a cartwheel, what's going to happen when you get cartwheeled involuntarily, right? <laughs> like, you know, the, these movement patterns, a lot of them, like there's going to be some variation of them, right? Can you invert over your head, right? Backwards, forward, sideways, hands on the ground, hands on the ground, like, like, when you're in a contact sport where you're going to get pinged and you're, you know, like someone's going to hit your legs while you're jumping, like you better have, a, you better have the ability to reorient yourself in space. And if, if you're afraid that you're going to get hurt doing it in a practice room with pads and mats and, you know, good progressions, like you know, how badly are you going to get hurt when you're disoriented in the air and you don't have control of it and you have no ability to orient where you're at. So, yeah, so I, I agree with you. I mean, I do think that obviously when someone has millions of dollars riding on their their body then it's contingent on us as coaches to be really really good at recognizing the progression that's appropriate for them and that is not going to injure them <laughs> but you know there's a progression for a cartwheel for everybody you know and if you're if you're physically talented and athletic enough to to be a potential you know college football player then uh, yeah like <laughs> that should not be a problem and if you've been taught that you should be afraid of things like that uh, and that's a mindset that's also not going to um, help you survive well in these type of situations, in my opinion. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the part that I, I really love that you mentioned. I'm going to have to probably clip this out and send it to my, my bigs that have to do with these cartwheels. Cause we, we have 320 pounds, like, and it, it's, it's part of that though. Like once they get it out of their head of being fearful of it and we progress it a little bit, but it's like, one of the coolest things for me is for them to understand, like my body can do this. Like my body's able to do some of these positions, get into some of these positions. And a lot of it is, physically putting them into it. But a lot of it's also, like you mentioned, like breaking that kind of the, 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 the fear of having to go into those positions. And like you said, like if we're, if we're scared to get in that position voluntarily in the pads in kind of this controlled manner, like what happens when you're going to see it on the field? Cause you're going to see it on the field. You can't control what you see on the field. Yeah, absolutely. So well, let's make more adaptive athletes, right? Um, my friend, uh, Josef Frusik described it on, uh, on a podcast I did with him, uh, he said, you know, we want to create street rats, not lab rats. I love that. And, and you, you talked about earlier, kind of the, kind of put them in the environment. And a lot of times the coaching of the coach comes in the way. And that's something that I think a lot of coaches struggle with. And I struggled with myself of like creating the environment and then like taking myself out of the environment. Like my, now I view my role as like creating this, especially for a lot of the perception reaction type drills, um, I, I, my job is to create the environment, let the athletes be athletes and 
just monitor it that way. How, how do you kind of approach that? And what's kind of your thoughts with why, why does coaching come in the way in the first place? And then how do you kind of approach the, the non-coaching coaching method? Yeah. Yeah. I have an ongoing kind of dialogue with Nick Winkleman about this type of stuff, which is really fun. And I've been thinking about it. You're familiar with Nick, right? Author of the, the, the language of coaching, the art and science of, uh, art and science uh, of teaching movement. There it is. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Check it out. Amazing stuff. But he's really on the side of how we, how we improve the verbal cues. So there is a role for this. Um, I'm not a, like a perception and action purist. Um, I think we can play with constraints and we can play with cues and we need to understand what's appropriate and what are the limitations of each. So my journey with that was that when I, so I, I, I initially built a kind of skill model through teaching indoors parkour, right? So I learned to do parkour outdoors myself, but I had access to a gymnastics gym. I was teaching gymnastics. And so I started teaching people parkour indoors through the gymnastics gym. And then we designed our own space, which was like much more modeling the outdoor world. It was, you know, metal rails and, and wooden boxes and like three quarter inch um, horse stall matting on the ground. Right. So it was not so soft but I, I was building these technical progressions and I came from gymnastics. So I was really good at breaking movements down into pieces, right? Atomizing movements and building things up. So when I saw that somebody had a, like couldn't understand a movement, I could break it down into component pieces and give them progressions up through it. So I had all these progressions built and I had all these cues for where people tended to go wrong in those progressions. So then I took people into nature and I started teaching primarily in nature. And all of a sudden what I noticed was that very frequently people were not needing the cues that I expected to have to give them or the breakdowns. I would introduce the skill and where I would expect to have to sort of say, Hey, here's the, here's the, the progression you need to get the skill. They wouldn't need that. So uh, an example that maybe a lot of your audience would be familiar with is a bear crawl, right? So bear crawl is now pretty popular in the strength and conditioning world. And if you ask most novice athletes to get, or if you ask a group of novice athletes to get on the ground and try to do a bear crawl, um, you know, maybe 50% of them will adopt an ipsilateral pattern. That's when, when one hand moves forward, the foot on the same side will move forward. Um, generally, we all believe in the industry that you should be using a contralateral crawl. And so we'll try to cue people to do a contralateral crawl. So an example of a very naive cue is contralateral, right? Do it contralaterally. Um, a lot of times we as coaches absorb very technical language. And then we reproduce it because it's the way that we're conceptualizing what we're thinking about, but it's completely unfamiliar to our athletes. So it just confuses them. So then you might say opposite hand, opposite foot, but that's still actually very hard for an athlete to interpret, even if they're in a, um, even if they're, uh, sorry, especially when they're in an unfamiliar position, being, we're habitually bipedally oriented. A lot of people experience a lot of motor confusion when you just put them in a horizontal position especially on all fours, which has a, a substantial strength demand for people. So then you ask them to do this opposite hand, opposite foot thing, and their brain just doesn't process it. So people get really confused. Um, then you could go to like kinesthetic cues. You can physically lift the hand and foot that you want moving, lift the other hand and the foot. And that works a little bit better. But what I found was that if you have someone on a tree branch that's sufficiently wide, that it's stable enough that they don't feel like they're going to fall off easily, they'll automatically use a contralateral gait um, because the constraint, the environment gives enough specifying information to the athlete 
that their body self-organizes a better pattern. Um, so a lot of the basic skills in, in parkour, uh, like a step vault, lazy vault, a, uh, a, a Kong up, those are, uh, those are skills that most humans who are relatively fit will actually just self-organize given a sufficiently complex and interesting environment that, that creates the right information to get them to try that skill. And so what I would do then is as I, uh, as I, so, you know, I didn't understand all these concepts when this started happening. But what I, what I noticed was, was that they were figuring this stuff out and I wasn't having to give them the information. And at first it was really disturbing to me because it felt like, well, what is my goal? Like, what am I here for? Right? I'm here for my beautiful ability to use words to make people do movement, right? I'm so smart. And then now they don't need me to be smart, right? They're just doing it. Uh, but then I was like, well, this is kind of cool. And so I'm going to try to trick athletes into learning skills. So rather than give them a specific movement pattern that I wanted them to do, I'm going to task and a specific set of constraints, a specific environment, and or a specific kind of set of skill goals, right? Like a direction they had to go after completing a task um, that would automatically get them to adopt the pattern that I was looking for. I got really interested in that. And that was, as I mentioned, Michael Tankovich then exposed me to Franz Bosch and to Nikolai Bernstein. And then I picked up Rob Gray and the Action Perception podcast. I got really into that. Um, However, sometimes there is a place where you can, and there's a real value to being able to communicate with the athlete, right? You know, it's just information, right? Really what we're, we're talking about is getting information that helps the athlete organize better. So you can create that information through the constraints in the environment, or you can create that information through your words. Um, and they, they have different purposes. The, the, the danger of words is that you, um, well, you can produce confusion, as I mentioned before, right? You can also create dependence, right? So the athlete feels like they need you there, need you feeding them words in order to perform the skill. That's, that's not something you want to create. Uh, you want to create independent athletes. Like Phil Jackson is maybe the greatest NBA coach of all time. And one thing you'll notice about Phil is that he doesn't say very much when he's on the bench. And he was asked about that. And what he said is like, you know, if they need me to talk to them a lot during the game, I didn't do my job in the practices. I think that's a good, uh, good attitude for a coach, right? We tend to naively think that anything we do to intervene with an athlete, especially if it's based on some technical model we have of a skill, will make the athlete better. But the reality is that an intervention can always improve the athlete's performance or disimprove the athlete's performance. And the capacity of the coach to actually damage the athlete's performance is something that most coaches don't consider nearly seriously enough. I love um, Nassim Taleb has this concept, iatrogenics, right? We, we need to think of ourselves like that, right? That we should have, as coaches, we should have the Hippocratic Oath. First, to do no harm. So like Nick Winkleman's work and his work comes out of like Gabby Wolf's work and other folks' work, this points out that that when we use internal cues, we tend to, um, internal cues are cues that are, that relate the body to itself, right? When we ask someone to squeeze their glutes, to activate their transverse abdominis, you know, to externally rotate their femurs, all these cues like that are associated with decrements in performance. And most coaches in the industry are not firm, are not aware of this and are not actually doing any kind of empirical testing of their cueing language to see if it actually improves performance. We go from theory, this is the way the thing is supposed to be performed in our mind, which isn't necessarily even true to begin with, 
and we describe it to the athletes and we think that that's sufficient to actually create performance benefits. So that's, that's one way that the coach can get in the way. Um, also the way that the way that we communicate with athletes sets the emotional tone of a, of a training, right? And if an athlete, you want to get an athlete into flow state or well, making them anxious or beat down or upset is not going to help them get into flow state and the flow state is where they're going to optimally learn. So there's lots of ways that a coach can, can mess an athlete up. When I had Nick Winkleman on my podcast, my question was like, if you were hired by a foreign guy, if you were a spy, like a, a wrecker for a foreign government, working with the U S Olympic team and trying to like ruin them because you work for the Russians, how could you get away? How could you do it in such a way that people would think you were actually trying to make them better? It's like over cue them, like be super hypercritical and use lots of internal cues. This is the type of thing that you can do. So I don't know. I feel like I'm getting a little lost. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of, um, a lot of different things that I want to bring to bear here, but it, it, maybe you can ask me an, another question so I can clarify where we should go within all this stuff. No, coach, this is, this is all good. I mean, I, I'm going down, hopefully this rabbit hole with you and trying to keep up. There's so much, like I have this whole page of notes already filled up rolling through one of the, one of the cool parts I like that you mentioned and the, the whole anti-fragile kind of approach of uh, via negativity or being able to like eliminate rather than add. And I think that's something that with our athletes, because you, you mentioned like, if you have to say something to that athlete or you have that athlete that is always looking to you, you know, and that that's where I, that's where I really know, like the best thing I can do for that athlete, not physical, like it, it's none of my cues. It's taking, uh, having to be coached out of it. And like, once they're able to like, what I know when I have a good environment set up, when, when that athlete that usually looks to me is not looking to me anymore for an answer, you know, like he's just flowing, he's feeling it. And that's when he suddenly starts to move. He starts to PR, he starts to make people miss and feel confident and move confidently. And I just, I, I love that approach. Like the, the cue that you give that the thing that you give can either go good or bad. And it, it's not, I, like you said, I feel like it's, it's always, we always think it's good. It's always think we're adding good things. And there's so many athletes out there that they need way less. Like, like our number one jobs for many athletes out there needs to be able to like make them be able to coach themselves and be able to figure it out by themselves rather than giving them more on their plate to think about. Like they're already hyperactive thinkers. Yeah. Yeah. Some athletes really are going to want you to feed that cognitive aspect of their brain, right? They want to know all the models. They want to have all this, but that can really interfere, right? We know that the flow state is associated with optimal performance. And it's also associated with what's called hypofrontality, right? Which means that the frontal cortex of the brain, the linguistic processing areas, and you know, that kind of like really chatty thinking part of your brain is actually on, has less innervation. It's less active during flow state. So we want those lower areas of our brain, um, those lower motor control areas of our brain to actually be where we're primarily controlling this. So a lot of times we're, we're kind of, we're asking the when when we use language, what we can problematically be doing is we can be asking the wrong part of the brain to 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 be where the the focus is, um, the focus of our attention. And a lot of times, also, we're asking people to pay attention to too many things. We're we're spreading our attention across more than they can handle. Uh, we're talking about internal cues. There's also um, you know, uh, reinvestment, right? So if if an athlete has a highly technical model of a skill and they build it up by lots of pieces then that tends to be more fragile to uh, high stress. So one theory on why people choke is basically, you know, if you have a golf swing and you think of that golf swing as basically one continuous thing, um, 
you 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 can't get stuck hyper analyzing each piece. But if you break the golf swing into 10 different phases and you think about optimal technique and all those and you try to check each thing off, then you can get stuck in basically going from all those things are one one thing when you do it to now this piece is broken out. And so a highly technical model can can lead you to basically paralysis by analysis and getting stuck in cognition when you need to be in flow. Yeah. So and- the aspect how we communicate with athletes um, is really important in setting them up to be paying attention in the right way. And then this is something that I, I think, and maybe you don't have to deal with it as much because you're kind of in the movement world and in kind of in the core world. But this is number one thing I get is like, how are you tracking and measuring the, the, the kind of like, how are you showing that it works? You know, and that, that's something that I, I kind of struggle with. And to me, for me personally, it's, I value that athlete performing on game day, moving better, feeling better and telling me this, this is what's happening. The part that I struggle with is like, maybe it's a head coach. Maybe it's giving somebody else the data behind it, other than just telling them, Hey, like I'm seeing them move better. They feel better. They're talking about how they used what we did in practice on the field, which they're never going to say about some of this other data driven stuff, but what's kind of your approach to that yeah, I don't know if I have most information for you because because where I where I work is is so different. But you know, there's an old saying: not everything that is measured matters, and not everything that matters can be measured. Right? And we see this every year: the, the correlation between the tasks that are done at the NFL Combine and performance in the NFL are weakly correlated at best. Right? Some of them are not correlated at all. Right? Like if you want to, if you want to get a correlation out of it, it's like you know, the 40 is like not that correlated, but if you can combine the 40 with their body weight and like how far they jump, then you get a stronger correlation of like, okay, this is a, you know, a, me- a measurement of this athlete's explosive potential versus their, their, their mass. And that, that's a little bit more uh, predictive, but um, there's just a lot on the table that's not captured, right? Jerry Rice ran a four seven. Um, I believe it's the greatest NFL wideout in history. Um, DK Metcalf, uh, you know, had a terrible three cone time, right? He's killing the NFL now. So, so yeah, so there are things that are difficult for us to measure. And the other thing is that as athletes improve, so if you have a group of athletes and you're working with all of them, as they improve, they are improving in parallel with each other, right? So if you're, if you're creating a equivalent, uh, improvement in the performance of a wideout and a cornerback and they're going against each other in practice all the time, then it can be very difficult to tell that they're improving, right? From a, from a strictly sort of like metric, like having a clear metric of it, right? Like how many times does the quarterback break or how much, how, how big is the, is the, is the gap produced on the route, right? Like maybe you can do play tracking and see, okay, every time this, this, sorry, the, not the quarterback, but the, the wideout, right? So every time the wideout sets up a route, how much separation does it create? Well, if the cornerback is improving at the same rate as the wideout, then the separation is going to be the same, right? But if those players are then improving faster than the players on the other side, then, then, then you've won, but how are you going to measure it in, in practice? And then, you know, it's a statistically it's a statistically messy situation once you actually get into to um to to a game right because how many how many how many times do they, they does that wide out run a curl route right um you know what, what are the circumstances how do you cross compare across those like it's a small sample size there's lots of variables outside of what's going on there what is, what else is going on on that play 
right? They're all going to have an impact on what the, the performance output is. So I don't have a perfect answer, but I think that I think the Seamtel Labs ideas are actually potentially really useful here, which is that it's actually very easy to create narratives out of out of measurements that are actually false narratives and they're actually potentially misleading you. And you want to have sort of more model blind metrics that you can use. Um, and you know, the, the simplest one is always going to be performance, right? So, you know, uh, it, it's still, it's still fuzzy, right? Cause you know, you look at, you know, the, uh, say you're working with a, like a wide receiver, right? So, okay. He performs well this year. You go in, you know, he performs a certain way one year, you train in the next year and he performs differently. Um, is it because your, your coaching was better or worse, or is it because, you know, he has a different cornerback throwing to him or the line is worse or, you know what I mean? It's like, there's so many variables. It's really hard. And you can create all sorts of statistics by creating sort of arbitrary, like somewhat, ar there's always, there's always going to be arbitrariness in the way that you're measuring things in on-field play. And then there's going to be tons of noise. And I think a lot of times the people who are, who are getting really into that, that aspect of it are not respecting noise as a statistical concept nearly enough. So, so everyone wants hard numbers that they can really judge performance off of. And I think that one of the realities that people are going to have to face is that those numbers are going to be useful only if treated with, with uh, proper humility. Does that make sense? Yeah. 100%. So really you're going to have to have some kind of intuitive, some kind of like, you know, right. Perceived, like it's easier for me to do my job and I feel better doing it. Like that's, that's probably going to have to be at the fundamental of how you judge the impact of the coach on that athlete over time. And that's imperfect. But the reality is that you're not going to get perfect. And I think that goes back a little bit to kind of the, the barbell talk. We, we had a little bit about how it's not the barbell. That's the devil. It's not the numbers. That's the devil. It's kind of like what we do with that. You know, like it's how we I talk about the, like the feed the Turkey kind of thing about how we kind of lie or lie to ourselves about this entire time and kind of stuff ourselves as the turkeys and kind of pat us. And this is the biggest thing. Like we pat ourselves on the back. Like these numbers just give us like a, all right, good job. Like you're doing your job as a coach. But if you get so sucked into that, that you're not actually helping these athletes and you're not actually approaching it in a different way to kind of help them move forward. Then we're, we are that Turkey, you know, like we're stuffing ourselves for the dinner. Yeah. In some ways, like really good and good at this stuff starts to boil down to like getting your epistemology, right? Like what's your theory of knowledge and how do you like set yourself up to not deceive yourself? Because you can take any sort of measurement system. You can take any theory and you can find a way to confirm a narrative that tells you that you're doing a great job. Right? And uh, if you're, if you're, if you, if you don't have your epistemology set up correctly and you don't have good ways of, of identifying where you're falling into errors, um, you're, uh, yeah, it's, it's very easy to, to, to be like, yeah, I mean, I made all the, everyone's stronger in the weight room. So I did my job. Right. And, right? and or everybody's recon time is faster. I did my job. Right. And, and kind of the last, the last little bit that I want to, I want to touch on with you before we get into wrap fair round is, and this is maybe, and it touches on this a little bit is kind of that, that output versus um, kind of flow approach to training of, is there a time where we want that athlete to not be in flow? Uh, is there a time where we want to focus more on something specifically? Cause this is something that 
I found is like, we do actually, so we, we implement some things like, um, we, I call it box parkour. It's, it's you would laugh parkour wise, but it's, it's these big guys jumping over a box in a different way and just kind of exposing their bodies to different jump patterns and in some aspects. And again, I think this does go back. So maybe I kind of answered my own question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is we, we are getting, we could do these, this box parkour drill that we do for literally like 40 minutes. And the guys, cause the guys come up with different variations, different ways to jump over the box, different things to do like, and they're in, in that flow state. Like they're giving each other shit. They're kind of like smiling, happy. And that you're getting, you could literally get a thousand jumps in like in that little bit. And how do you take that flow approach to, if you were to look at that volume of jumps that we did in that States, you would, you would never program that volume. If this is making sense, like you never program that many jumps, you never, but the athletes are just moving and flowing. Like, how do you kind of approach that? Do you, do you cut it off? Do you like, I, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. So a um, couple, a couple different things that pop out for me there. One is like the concept of flow, like psycho- psychologically and how we look at that in the context of, of skill improvement versus um, looking at the demands of the sport. Right. And then the other is like when we're, when we're engaging in playful or kind of parkour type training versus um, like traditional strength training or, or jump training. How do we balance those two? So I actually think of those as somewhat two separate questions. I would separate those. So as far as like, you know, you, you set up an obstacle course and the athletes enjoy the obstacle course and they're having fun and they get a lot of reps in and maybe those reps are a different rep than you would use for a jump train. Um, I would respect the athlete's self-regulation and look at uh, like, I wouldn't worry about foot contacts particularly because they're not directly comparable, right? When you're doing something like a shock drill, where you're dropping from a specific height in a, in a very specific way. And you can look at that, at that as a very targeted dosing of a, of a jump, right? When you're looking at foot contacts in a parkour where, where somebody is trying to technically figure out different ways to do things, um, it's not really directly comparable like that. And so what you want to look at is what, what are the signals from the athletes that are telling you, are they improving or not? Like the fundamental thing that you're asking that you look like any training session, like do whatever you want for a specific period of time. How do you feel afterwards? How do you perform the next time you're asked to do the same thing? Right. The athletes do this and they don't feel destroyed by it and they get better the next time. Then you did a great job. Right. Like don't overcomplicate it. I think. Um, and, and, and look for the athlete feedback. I still think you can, you can learn to be strategic about it and recognize signals, right? You want to start looking at for the signals. Like, okay, like maybe that, maybe you have a group of athletes who just really enjoy this specific thing and they will overexert themselves and it will cut into their, their reserves for something else. And maybe that something else is something that you want to prioritize now. So you do, so the, the, the intervention at that stage for me is just to shorten the time that's available to them to do that activity. So like, Hey, you guys are having fun, but we need to leave some gas in the tank for your, you know, your more specific shock training or your Olympic lifts or whatever it is that you're, you're going to program. that's going to be more tightly uh, tight. Right. So we have, you can, you can, you can, the way that I look at it is like, you have the whole food movements and then you have your supplements. Supplements are things that you can, uh, that you want to, to dial in tightly. Right. So you know exactly how much vitamin D you need to take or vitamin C you need to take, but you eat your oatmeal and your steak to, to appetite. That makes sense. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So when you play full, play to appetite. When you're strength training and you're doing plyometrics, be tight in your, in your dosage. 
can track it tightly. That's one way to think about it. I, you know, I, I was just in my garage last night doing squats, barbell squats and, you know, uh, uh, split squats and tuck planes, pushups. Right. So I had that stuff as part of my program. And I think it's really important. And, you know, when we live, when we have performance goals, when we live in lifestyles that necessarily involve sedentism, I'm sitting here with you talking for an hour and a half or however long this is going to take. Um, that's going to, you know, that that's something that has to be counted for. And sometimes you need to bring in those supplements in order to, to make up for the, the sedentism of life or, you know, whatever it is, or to be able to create that more targeted adaption that you're looking for. But I think those are a couple of useful ways to think about that. And then with flow. So, so have you read the rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler? Really interesting book. But one, one thing he, one of his thesis is, is that the sports where athletes have more access to flow or more ability to control the parameters of flow improve faster. Right? So if you look at track and field, um, speed actually hasn't changed that much. Right? Uh, I think it was, uh, it was David Epstein who wrote the book, the sports gene. Um, but he was basically saying that if you account for the surface that they're running over and the, the, the type of, cleats that are available the jackie the jesse owens who is the world record holder in, you know in the 1930s and 40s and won the 1936 olympics his world his world record how he raced in that world record would have placed him third in the race that usain bolt won right so that's how much the whole field has improved over time but if you look at what's happening within parkour you look at what's happening within surfing skateboarding mountain biking bmxing you see these quantum leaps in performance Recently, somebody did a gainer over the manpower gap in, uh, which is a iconic gap in parkour. So it's a, it's a 11 foot wide gap, I believe with a 17 foot drop. And so he stands at the edge of this building on this point between two walls and throws himself forward and does a backflip going forward and lands and comes out of it. And he had to essentially create a whole new technique because he has to roll out at the end. And so in a gainer, your body's rotating backwards, right? But when you roll, you're going to be rotating forwards. So he has to time this just right and open up so that his body's leaning forward when his feet hit the ground in order to create a roll, which basically nobody had really practiced that and built that. But he spent like three years building up to this. And uh, I recently got a chance to interview Danny Wei, who's one of the greatest skateboarders of all time, right? He jumped the Great Wall of China on his skateboard and, you know, it's gone 27 feet high or 25 feet high or something like that on a, you know, on a on a ramp. And he invented the mega ramp, uh, which is in the X Games. And I mean, they talk about that, like how the, how these huge things happen, right? You go from a 55-foot jump to a 70-foot jump. Like those are quantum leaps in performance. But like... I don't, I don't think that anyone's better as a mover in the NFL today than Barry Sanders was. I think you can make an argument that Barry Sanders is the best that we've ever seen. So if Collar's right, the reason that we're seeing these rapid improvements in the flow sports is because when it's athlete versus environment, the athletes are better able to get themselves into a flow state and stay in that flow state for prolonged periods of time. And we know that the flow state is associated with more rapid acquisition of skill. So as a, uh, if you're working with team sport athletes, you, something like parkour or something like that, if you can build it in such a way that has more transfer to their skill and you can get them into that flow state more often, you might be able to see a more rapid improvement in their, uh, in their 
skill acquisition. I don't know if that's true. I don't think anyone's, nobody's ever done it, right? So this is not empirically really tested, I don't think. Um, it's just a, a hypothesis that you could play with, right? And see where you could go. The flip side of that is that when I'm, when I, when I'm out doing parkour in nature, like my goal to keep myself safe is to be in flow as much of the time as possible. But if you and I, in any adversarial sport, right? Tennis, basketball, football, baseball, combat sports. My goal is to prevent you from being in flow, right? Anytime you're in flow, things are probably going to be going bad for me. Anytime I'm in flow, things are going to be going bad for you. So what we're working on is essentially how do we interrupt each other's flow? So as a coach who's working with athletes who are in that context, what you want to look at is how do I manipulate the constraints and cues and everything so I can get these athletes in flow as much as possible, but also how do I interrupt their flow and teach them how to recover it as fast as possible. So uh, I was talking to Joseph Frusik about this. And it's like when you, as soon as the athletes have a rhythm and they're feeling good doing the task, you change it, you make it hard for them. But if we look at like the information theory and, and, and some of the stuff that comes out of the perception action, it's, it's all about optimizing that basically like what is the, the skill challenge ratio. But I think there's something interesting here in playing with that how do I put them in a situation where they can experience a prolonged flow state that's improving what they're doing? And how do I make that as specific as possible? And then also, how do I find ways to create interruptions of flow that we can look at how well they improve out of that in a more systematic way? Your, your, your whiteout is maybe killing it in one game. He gets into the next game and somebody is breaking his, you know, uh, it, it is, is upsetting his rhythm and how he's getting into his breaks. And all of a sudden it's just not clicking and he's out of flow and he's frustrated. How do I, in the training context, figure out ways to get him to that state that where he's, his flow is broken and then develop his strategies to recover that flow faster and better. That would be what I would be looking at in prepping team sports athletes through a flow state perspective. That, that, oh boy, coach, that is freaking awesome. Brett Adams mentions, I mean, he, he touched on this and he was talking about how he kind of did this in a sense of whenever he competes and creates these environments, he wants to make sure there's always an athlete that can beat another athlete. There's always an athlete that is on the same level as an athlete. And then there's always an athlete that he should be able to beat. And, and, and he was talking about it in this sense. And I love the way that you put that because you have that point. One, I think there's, there's a lot of athletes out there that haven't, really experienced or had been kind of in control of their flow. They've never been in it a long enough state. Maybe it's just randomly one day, they just had an awesome Friday night, like high school football game and the floats, but they never really understood what that was. And I love the aspect of teaching my athletes. Like that's, that's what we're in right now. That's why you're feeling it. That's why you're able to go through all of this. Like, this is what you're feeling. But now, like you said, like the, the, the progression from that is now, all right, now you're feeling it. You understand that you've been in this. Now this is what this is going to feel like on game day. This is what you want to go in. But now, boom, like you said, like that opponent, the entire job of the opponent is to get you out of that, to make you struggle, to not have you in that state. And now can you come back? Or is it just the, the, you, you've, you've been in fairyland, you know what that is. And now somebody punches you and you have no idea what to do with that. I, I, that, I think that's yeah. freaking awesome. Yeah. And you'll see, you'll see, I think there are two classic personality types that you see. You see the athletes who are very naturally talented, who've been able to just be in flow by dominating all the time. And when they get interrupted, they have no ability to come back. Right. So there, so, you know, you also have the athletes who, who've done it and come back and who are ferocious competitors and know how to do that. And, and who are good at identifying enough challenge. Right. But you have the guys who like are just talented enough that they keep, they keep ahead of the curve. 
and they don't seek out the challenge that actually breaks them out of flow. And those guys are really fragile, right? So you'll see these guys who have amazing performances and then somebody, somebody figures out the key to interrupting them and they just collapse. And the flip side is the guys who identify themselves as not talented, right? And so they're always looking to challenge themselves above the point at which they're actually in flow. And so they're anxious all the time and they're studying all the time and they're pushing themselves all the time, but they're actually breaking down and they never quite get that fluidity and that comfort. Right. And so you can, you can look at those athletes. I think sometimes those narratives are false, right? Like you have an athlete who's, who's actually talented, but for whatever reason, he, he's taken on that grinder mentality, but it's not actually serving him. Like obviously we need to work hard. Um, but there's a point, at, you know, uh, the medicines and the poison and that poisons in the dose. Right. And it's variable for athletes, right? We have this, this culture in sports of thinking that like what makes an athlete great is that they work harder than everybody else, but more is not always better. Sometimes it's worse. And some athletes are going to tolerate more work than another. So the reason that, you know, maybe Kobe Bryant is better than everybody isn't necessarily that he took more shots than everybody, but it's that he could take those shots, right? That his, his constitutional robustness wasn't intense enough. Maybe Allen Iverson, right, was actually smart to rebel against the pressure to, to practice as much as Larry Brown wanted him to, because maybe his constitution wasn't set up to be as good at that. Or maybe he was just partying too much and <laughs> chocolate. Who knows? I don't know the situation. But the point is that, that the capacity to tolerate a given amount of work is not evenly distributed across the population. And there's a level of work at which everybody breaks down. And if you're preparing an athlete, your job isn't to just make them work as hard as possible is to identify the level of work that's going to create an optimal improvement in that athlete. Um, and it's going to be that it has to be that athlete, right? Cause you know, the guy in front of you may be world-class athlete and an incredible talent and he may not be Michael Jordan, right? In his mindset or his, his, his capacity to deal with stuff. So, so having that respect for individual variability and recognizing that there is such a thing as a minimum effective dose. And there is such a thing as, a point, you know, a uh, a point at which you're you're now decreasing the athlete's capacity and ability to 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 adapt because you know you can't run forever and you can't lift weights forever and you and you can't push yourself the hardest that you've ever pushed yourself over and over and over again. Eventually, the system runs out of resources. No, I, I mean, I wrote a whole article for Joel Smith about this, talking about surviving my own stupidity, because that's, I mean, that was my approach to training when I was in it. It worked out in some sense, but it's like, like you said, like you can't continue. And I was just, I always thought it was like, to my, in my head, it was the grind that made it, but it was just like, man, just surviving the grind, you know, like there's so many better ways to go about that. So now like my approach is to not have my athletes survive my stupidity anymore. You know, like it's continue to push it forward. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm kind of a grinder, right? I'm like I'm incredibly dis. I in the past I've been incredibly disciplined about my practice, my physical practice. But like, how many athletes do you know who are incredibly disciplined about their physical practice, but are not disciplined about what they put in their body, how for, uh, how well they rest, like the information that they're taking in, their stress levels? Like uh, <laughs> Paul Check said to me recently, like the most common the most common problem that he sees with athletes like that's decreasing their performance is actually stressing out about their girlfriends, right? Because they have multiple things going, multiple girlfriends at the same time who they're trying to prevent no about each other, right? Like fucking up your personal relationships and being stressed about that 
is actually going to massively decrease your capacity. And you may be really, really good at being disciplined about getting that bar up off uh, your chest. But if you're not getting disciplined about getting your ass to bed and you know treating the people in your life honestly, that, that, that may actually have way more to do with your performance than doing an extra set of, uh, of, of bench press. I'm going to have to clip that out and send it to my football team coach. I talk about the other 22 hours and how uh, the other 22 hours when you're not with me working out, like that's the fun part. The other 22 hours is the, and you want to, if you want to talk about the grind, like, I mean, that's the grind and I'm going to clip that out and send that to him. Get your ass to bed, man. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And now we can finish up with the rapid fire rounds. Um, So we got a couple questions here. Um, I'm really excited for your answers and kind of digging into these first two, especially, but the first one is kind of your favorite books that have allowed you to kind of get to the mindset that you're at and that helped you through life. Yeah. 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 So the first one that pops into my head is dexterity and its development by Nicolette Bernstein. Right. I think everybody in, in this, in this audience needs to read that book, strength and coordination and integrated approach by Franz Bosch would be another one um, in that realm. I'm going to go in a little bit different direction and say the profit by Khalil Gibran, which is, is going to increase that social emotional intelligence and understanding how we, how we show up as teachers and how we show up as people and relationally, because that's absolutely vital to this, this thing as well. Um, that's three. Um, what else is really important in, in, you know, I have lots of books. I love fantasy. I love, you know, uh, I read all sorts of things, history. Um, but, uh, I'm going to say for a lot of this, this audience, I suspect Jordan Peterson's uh, book, um, 12 Rules for Life, would also be a really useful one to pick up. I like Maps of Meaning better, but it's incredibly dense and very yeah. difficult to read. So it's like you, you pick your poison. Um, it took me a year to get through that book, but it's one of the most important books that I've ever read. Um, last one. What would I put it? Last one. Um, I think, you know, particularly for what we're talking about and really understanding kind of the evolutionary context uh, of, of, of movement. Um, just this, this whole idea of movement and nutrition, I would put, uh, Katie Bowman's book, uh, move your DNA as another one. I think would be really useful for people to understand. Ooh. And I have, I have a huge reading list, uh, that I, that I give to all my students. And I need to actually get it up on my website, but, uh, I, I'm good. Yeah. Lots to say about books. <laughs> and I, I love that. And I think for the, you talk about the, the 12 rules, um, something I want to branch off just a little bit there is if any of the listeners, like if you guys want to, he, he has maps of meaning and I think he has a 12, but he has a biblical series too of kind of breaking down the book and going through this. But if you guys, if you don't agree with any of his messages or any of that, and you just want to see as a coach, like how we should speak and how we should communicate our message, like watch one of those lectures, watch one of those presentations that he has. Unreal. A lot of people don't like him for some of his political stances, but if you watch the maps of meaning series, it's got nothing to do with that. And there's an yeah. immense amount of really powerful stuff. And if you understand the power of narrative and story, how that impacts performance, right? I think it's incredibly valuable. You know, you could look at Joseph Campbell's, you know, the hero of a thousand faces or some of these other things as resources instead. But that's what I, that's what I got. That's where I came from in understanding this aspect of it. And I found it incredibly rich and useful as a coach. And, and it's had a huge impact on my students and how yeah, same. And next question. And this is somebody I'm interested because I'm, I'm interested in diving deeper into this rabbit hole of movement and thinkers like yourself, but who's a guest that you think we should kind of have on and that I can learn a lot from. Yeah. So can I do two? You can do as many as you want. Yeah. Um, Joseph Frusick from fighting monkey, I think would be a really interesting uh, discussion for you. 
Oh, Jesus, three. Uh, Nick Winkleman, we got to have Nick Winkleman on. He's the man on communication. And I'm going to add my, my buddy, Simon Thacker. I don't think he's quite as interested at, in the team sports stuff as me. Um, so may not have as much kind of ability to bridge that gap, but his, his work is incredibly aligned with me. He's an amazing speaker. And if people are looking at like the holistic aspect of movement and understand the evolutionary context and understanding um, like how we cultivate the person, the meditative side, He's an extraordinarily experienced meditator, yogi, um, and brings that perspective into the, this evolutionary stuff. So I'm a huge fan of him. Um, but we'll just say I, we put on a summit in in uh, in this July where we had all these guys speaking. That's um, awesome. And that is, uh, if people, um, I, th- I think there's yeah, I think there's a free resource for people on my Instagram. If people go over to my Instagram or riffkelly.com and they can get on our newsletter through that some cool free resources for that uh so you can just get in there um and if you do that then we're going to put that summit for sale again probably in january and there's just an immense amount it's a really beautiful uh thing that we put together and i think that people could get a lot out of that and and seeing these speakers nick gave an amazing presentation john verbeke who if folks are into the jordan peterson stuff john verbeke stuff is incredible he did an amazing presentation about uh the importance of mindful movement practices which i think you know, just astonishing to the, uh, to the, to the audience. So there you go. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dive deep into all of the, all of those rabbit holes. So that's good. Uh, next question. Uh, what's kind of next for you? I, I know we, we talked a little bit pre podcast about how the COVID has been affecting everything business wise, but what, maybe it's a year goal. Maybe it's when COVID's over, maybe it's a five year kind of grandioso goal. What's kind of that next big goal? Yeah. So, um, the next kind of new thing that we're going to do is we're actually going to be offering an internship for coaches. So if people are interested in a natural movement approach and a, uh, like a coaching education package that includes like a deep dive into the evolutionary theory, a deep dive into the motor learning theory and, and, you know, cueing and constraints led approach and the dynamical systems. Um, and that hat teaches all the basic parkour skills and how to use them and gets into roughhousing and martial arts techniques and how do we coach all these aspects together and understanding play research. Um, we're going to be doing that. We're going to also be partnering with a friend who has a whole uh, business mastery aspect to it as well. Business mastery uh, mastermind. Uh, he's an amazing guy and has helped me a ton with my business. So um, that is mostly just going to be an invite only thing. Um, but if anyone is really keen on it, they can, uh, they can PM me and uh, or personal message me, email me and, and, and let me know if they think they're a good match for that. But uh, yeah, that's the, that's, what's new that's coming up. We're only going to be doing like probably 20 people um, for that, but that is the, the, the latest thing. And then we'll be releasing our retreats once the COVID situation is uh, in some sense controlled. Right. Uh, I think that, Sometime in the spring, we're going to be able to return to a, a semi-normal um, with with the vaccine coming out and the monoclonal antibodies and all these things. So, but right now we're in the middle of a big wave, so it's not time to put that out. But yeah, in, in uh, early in the year, we're going to be releasing our retreats, and then we have our online academy and kind of online programs that we're working on, and uh, people can check those out. Um, we have our our Evolving Place Foundations program, which we can give you a link for uh, for, and we'll have that available for everyone when you when you put this up if you'd like. Awesome, yeah, for sure. We'll put that in the show notes. And the last kind of last question, and this is kind of when all this, all the retreats, all the coaching, all this movement stuff is over. But what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think that I've been really blessed and lucky in a lot of ways to be kind of at these interesting intersections of, of movement culture and 
ultimately what, what I want to do is, is help people live more meaningful lives through connecting deeply to the things that matter most. And I believe that the movement is actually the most foundational place we rebuild um, meaning and rebuild our connection to, to the natural world, to our own selves, to our bodies, um, and to the community that we move within. So that's, that's my, that's where I, I would like to, to be able to have a big impact on the world. I'd like to see a world where people have much more of a sense that their lives are meaningful and that they're deeply connected to the natural world, to movement, to uh, their bodies and to communities that have a lot of intimacy and a lot of connection. Um, and I don't think, I think a lot of people are really missing and disconnected from those things. Cool. Coach. We, we survived the podcast. Thank you a ton for this time. Yeah. This is, I, like I said, I got an entire page of notes and there, there was so much in this podcast. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. It was really enjoyable. Thank you for the questions. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.